welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What values drive contemporary leadership and how have they influenced the church? Where did the idea of servant leadership first come from? And why is the answer more surprising than we think? What are the problems with servant leadership when it comes to power and how we use it? And how is friendship a better model? And what does it mean to lead in love? Welcome to today's episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Chloe Lynch. Chloe is a lecturer in practical theology at the London School of Theology and is also a spiritual director with a ministry of preaching, teaching and mentoring church leaders. She published her book, Ecclesial Leadership as Friendship, in 2019. And our title today is, What's Wrong with Servant Leadership? And Is There a Better Way? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Chloe Lynch, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here, Philip. Chloe, you're now a lecturer in practical theology at the London School of Theology, as well as also a spiritual director, I know. Tell us about the journey that God has taken you to this current set of roles you have now. Well, actually, I started life as a city lawyer. I knew I had a call to church leadership, but it was the right thing to do initially to go and earn some money, get some real life experience. And then in 2007, I finally took a gap year from the city and went to London School of Theology as an undergrad, did a year and ended up staying. Turns out a year at LST is never enough. And by 2014, I found myself having joined the faculty. I'd done a master's en route. I was also leading in a local church at the time. In the end, I did 10 years in church leadership. The whole spiritual director thing, though, was totally unexpected. About four years ago, I had become interested in Carmelite spirituality, which is a bit of a story in itself. But long story short, I thought I was about to be looking for a Carmelite spiritual director. You know, when heaven has other ideas and you discover, oh, no, that's not what we're doing at all. In fact, we're training as a Carmelite form spiritual director. And so that's what happened. Um, and since then, I've had this kind of dual ministry as academic theologian and also as spiritual director. And for me, both of those roles are really about asking the question, how do I practice ministry more faithfully? How do I pray more faithfully? And I'm asking those questions in my academic work. But I'm also asking those questions in the context of practice for me and for the people I serve, basically. Now, I know one of your focuses over the academic work that you've done has been on church leadership. Obviously, you've been involved in church leadership, but perhaps you'd tell us about why that question was interesting you from an academic perspective and, and perhaps what you mean by leadership in this context. Sure. It stems from the fact that I found myself leading a church at the age of 26. And I was still doing the day job in London, but a group of us had planted a church for people that didn't do church. And my husband and I and another leader, all of us mid-20s, became part of this sort of emerging leadership team. The leader who was the founding leader who was mentoring us, I suppose, kind of gave us this model of church leadership 
in which it was the numbers that were important, you know, increase the attendance. It's all about getting a building. Um, we need money. It's all about the cash, what, what we call the ABCs. I think there's this whole thing in evangelicalism of, you know, churches need to grow so that we can make more converts for Jesus. And then our reach for Jesus in terms of the bodies on the ground and the money that we've got will be greater, which means we can make more people for Jesus. And in that world, bigger is often perceived to be better. And that's what I was inhabiting. So, yeah, sure. Along with everyone else, we're talking about following Jesus and having a flourishing church. But in practice, in all that exalted language, what we got specific about were the numbers. And if you asked us to answer the question of, well, how are you going to form people for Jesus? We were a bit like, mm, bit blurry on that one. Anyway, the founding leader then stepped aside within the space of two years. So at 28, suddenly I was the only paid leader of this little West London church. And <laughs> that was really sobering. I just thought, I don't know what I'm doing. My ministry philosophy so far, you know, the make it up as you go along philosophy was not going to work forever. And so I, I really thought I've got to do some work. The thing about doing PhD study, though, because that's how I decided to do it, is that when you start, it's like getting parachuted into the middle of an ocean. My thesis proposal, it wouldn't be allowed these days. But my thesis proposal was basically, I want to write about Jesus and the church and leadership. And that was kind of it. The thing was, I was sure we have a better theological story to tell than the story that I'd been inhabiting. But I just got a bit stuck because there was all this theological material. Well, where do you start? And then, of course, if you're talking about leadership, there's a whole base of leadership literature. Well, where do you start with that? Secular leadership studies are huge. And the thing about practical theology is it's about having a conversation between these different disciplines in a way that's wise and sensible and good. And here am I lost in the middle of the ocean. So actually definitions you ask about defining leadership, that in the end is where I had to start. You know, well, how, what do I mean by leadership? I can't write this PhD if I cannot figure out what I mean by leadership. Problem with that, of course, is that there are about as many definitions of leadership as there are scholars who are coming up with them because, you know, we've all got to stay in our day jobs somehow, haven't we, writing the original articles. And so it took me a long time to work through all the literature. But in the end, it seems that the literature, generally speaking, agrees that leadership is a process of influence towards a goal or objective that involves at least one leader and one follower. So process of influence towards a goal and then one leader and one follower. And it seemed to me that that question of goal, that question of end point is really where we have to start leadership in the church has got to influence people towards something. But what that is, that was effectively my $64 million question in my research. So Jesus, leadership and the church, that doesn't sound like a bad description about where we're going to go today in our conversation, Chloe. Thank you very much indeed for that. Now, you talked about the role of practical theology, which is kind of applying theology to our particular questions that are facing us today. You've talked about, obviously, you need to engage with secular leadership theories and understandings. But I know you're actually quite nervous about what you've called an unquestioning adoption of management language and leadership theories into the kind of Western church and of the kind of unwillingness of churches to kind of reframe leadership for a Christian context. Do you want to explain a little bit about why you're nervous and, and critical of that unquestioning approach? Yeah, I think to major on the attendance, the buildings and the cash, if you like, that's what the managerialist story does. I think it's happened because in the church, we've allowed a particular story of leadership to get hold of us. And that particular story 
is this managerialist story. I think, on the other hand, what we should be doing is letting the gospel shape our understanding of what leadership is. And yet what I think we've done is stop trying to tell a theological story at all. And if you don't tell a theological story, what happens is that the underlying narratives of leadership, in this case, managerialism, just come in and they are unquestioned by us because it doesn't occur to us that those assumptions are wrong. We start to think that language in leadership and techniques in leadership are neutral, but of course they're not. They are just going utterly unquestioned by us. So, for example, in managerialism, success is defined by four factors. This is the classic thesis that comes from Ritzer, a sociologist. It's called the McDonaldization thesis, interestingly enough. Uh, and actually, McDonald's is a great example of this. You know, when you arrive at McDonald's, what is it you actually want? Well, you want what you had last time and you want it to be delivered to you as quickly as possible. Uh, you want it to cost the same as it cost last time, to have the same ingredients you want it to be the same size that it was. Essentially, what you want is efficiency. You want it as fast as possible and you want predictability. It needs to be the same as it was. And of course, that's what McDonald's wants too. And they want to optimize efficiency. And to do that, they've got to control things enough to keep the drive through queue moving because, you know, more cars is more orders, more orders is more money. And that's optimization of profit. So they want to be able to have control over the process. They want to be able to predict their sales. They want to optimize it, make it as efficient as possible in order to see, you know, calculate my costs and how much can I make on this particular burger or whatever else it is that you're buying in McDonald's. And those are the four criteria, the four measures of success, efficiency, predictability, calculability and control. That's success in the burger world. And what happens then is quantity and quality become almost synonymous. The deal is if I have a lot of it, well, surely it must be good. Now, I think there's a problem in taking that narrative over into the church world. And yet, if we don't ask the questions about the managerialist narrative, that is exactly what we're going to do. I'm not saying the numbers aren't important in the church. That's normally what people say to me. It's like, oh, well, do you not care about the attendance numbers? Do you not care about the cash? Like, no, I've worked as a church leader. I totally care about those things too. But I think the question is, why do we care? And actually, what are we measuring? It's not just about bottoms on seats. It's got to be about making disciples. High attendance figures, therefore, are good, but only if those people are actually being helped to pursue discipleship more deeply. Same with cash. Cash flow, healthy cash flow is a good thing. We can all agree with that. But it's not an end in itself. Like the point about money in the church is not that we're trying to accumulate it, but that we have it to do the ministry that is in our hands to do. And so I think what the managerialist narrative does and actually any other leadership narrative is that it puts goals in place. It puts an idea of what success is into our practice of leadership. And if we don't tell a better story, a more theological story, then we're going to end up with that definition of success. And I, I just think that's a problem. I think what it does for us is it means we start to treat individuals less as persons and more as means to our ends. I think that we are more interested in what our people can do for us as leaders in the church at its most extreme. We maybe start to see people as names that can fill rotors rather than persons in their own right, because every church leader has that rotor filling pain, of course. And so I see it to be deeply problematic. But in all that, I guess it's important to say I'm not saying management is a problem. It's the underlying narrative of managerialism. You know, we do need management processes. 
the bigger someone's leadership influence gets, the more followers that become involved in a leadership process, the more there are need for management functions, you know, things like planning, organizing, coordinating, controlling, all of that has its place. But the point is that it is leadership that should dictate the shape of those practices, not an underlying narrative of managerialism and the need to control that starts to dictate what our leadership goals are. So really, it's about what comes first for me. You've described really helpfully the challenges or the problems with an unquestioning approach to management theory or rather the narratives that underlie it. One of the things that Christians often do therefore is look for a very different narrative and if we're going to avoid just a kind of ABC approach let's look for a different model that seems to be more distinctively Christian and the one that you recognize that is often reached for is what's called servant leadership but one of the things that you've done in your work which I found really helpful Chloe is you've actually said well servant leadership isn't actually a a Christian uh, management theory per se it was actually developed by somebody called Robert Greenleaf therefore let's talk about that because that's what we're going to think about today introduce the idea of servant leadership as Robert Greenleaf first invented it and then perhaps say a little bit about why an unquestioning adoption of that management or leadership theory is is perhaps just as problematic yeah so Greenleaf wrote a seminal essay called servant leadership and he wrote various things thereafter and his idea of servant leadership is important to say first off is not based in scripture but it's based on a little parable called the journey to the east and this parable tells the story of a heroic group of pilgrims who are on some quest and it tells a story also of their servant leo And Leo is the one who offers practical support and encouragement and cheers them along on the journey. And one day Leo disappears and very quickly the group falls apart. Anyway, years later in this parable, it turns out that Leo the servant was actually also the secret leader of the order that these pilgrims belonged to. And they just didn't know it. And of course, the moral that Greenleaf wants to draw from this parable is, look, The servant is, in fact, the leader. That's the measure of leadership in the end. And so he he frames it as what he calls a servant leadership test. In leadership, do those who are served grow as persons? And what is the effect on the least privileged in society? Will they benefit from this leadership or at least will they not be further deprived? And so Greenleaf offers this as his servant leadership test, which makes the whole thing sound empirically testable, you know, as if the boundaries of servant leadership are clearly definable. But actually, Greenleaf doesn't really do that. He sets out 10 aspects of servant leadership in his essay, doesn't go much further than that. There's a whole load of other material he wrote. But interestingly, a lot of it was published posthumously. And some of it was even marked do not publish, but his rather overzealous disciples decided to publish it anyway. And so one way or another, the concept is actually a bit blurry. And even all the secondary literature that's been spawned by it, it can't agree exactly on what servant leadership is. So methodologically, I think it's kind of problematic. Theologically, I think it's definitely problematic. So the church has tended to baptise the Greenleaf model. And it's tended to do that probably because we can't be bothered to do the biblical work, I assume. We feel like here's what I made earlier. The thing is, that's problematic because Greenleaf never self-identified 
particularly as a Christian. He had a Methodist upbringing, and there is certainly reference to scripture in his work, but he doesn't present his work as being Christian. He draws on a whole load of different sources, like Eastern mystic sources, Jungianism. He denies that scripture is revelatory. It's certainly not authoritative as soon as, as far as he's concerned. When I say he refers to scripture, he does, but it's like proof texting in the extreme. There's nothing about it that should really be saying to us, oh, here's an alternative to reading what scripture has to say about servanthood. His whole approach to what it is to be human is very much rooted in the idea of the spirit and the inner light. It's a kind of a Quaker kind of perspective whereby one can know things via the inner light. There's no reference to the Holy Spirit whatsoever. And so I think baptizing Greenleaf's philosophy as Christians is a bit problematic. It's a little bit lazy. And we could do more. It's true. We could do more with servanthood if we were to read the scriptures more carefully. And I think that work needs to be done there's a tendency just to pull texts if we're going to reference the scripture at all. And I think there's space to do that work. But I still don't think that deals with the issues around servanthood and what that means for power. I think there's space for doing something a bit different in terms of leadership and power. You've highlighted the way in which Greenleaf's articulation of servant leadership is quite distanced from a a Christian understanding of leadership and and servanthood or at least you've shown the way in which it's not rooted in in an understanding but obviously sort of servanthood does come up in some of the biblical texts I'm thinking of kind of Mark 10 42 to 45 is the obvious text where Jesus says that among the Gentiles those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrant over them but it is not so among you whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant but you seem to be suggesting even that's just unquestioning adoption of that and saying well there's servant leadership for you doesn't pay attention to some of the dynamics around power do you want to say why why even that is not on its own sufficient I think The language of servanthood has shifted a lot since Jesus was using it. At the end of the day, I'm an evangelical. I'm not going to say not what Jesus said. But I do think the point about metaphor language is that it has to be accessible to the community that is engaging with it. And therefore, we need to ask what servanthood means today. And does it actually mean what Jesus understood by it? Servanthood language today, I think, polarises power. And I think it does it in two directions. I think it means, first off, that a leader who self-identifies as a servant can settle for too little power. And when a leader fails to take up the power that is rightfully theirs, whether that's because of a particular understanding of servanthood that they have or for any other reason, that can be really problematic because it creates a power vacuum in the room. And you can be sure someone less scrupulous will jump straight in there. In fact, it's also talked about by feminist theologians, this language, this idea of servanthood language being associated with little power. The feminist theologians speak about it being unhelpful for women who've experienced oppression by men or by society as a whole, because these women feel that servanthood has been forced on them rather than being an actual choice they've made. Then there are womanist scholars who reference the black female experience of slavery and later of domestic service as particularly stark examples of how servanthood just was not chosen. And they say that women's selves need first to be called into being 
before you can ever ask for an act of laying down that self. That that laying down of self, first, a self must be in being, and then secondly, that self must choose to lay the self down. Uh, And I think whether or not that resonates personally for every individual, the truth is that the traditions of our communities, cultural communities, historical context, they do influence how imagery is heard. We, if we hear servanthood in some quarters as a painful metaphor, something that's imbued with oppression and the idea of forced acceptance, then it is going to create a twisting of the image for us today. And it's going to make it very difficult for us to think of servanthood as something healthy. It's not just, of course, the cultural historical piece. I think it's also that servanthood today tends to make us think of tasks. If you think of service, you think of the things that need to be done. And in that, I think it's easy for personhood to get lost. It's all about doing the thing. When I've done the thing, I've served you. I don't need to engage with your personhood. I don't need to share my personhood with you in the the process necessarily. And so you can get these leaders who are failing to set healthy boundaries for themselves because they're like, well, I need to do the thing. I need to fulfill the task. And they actually allow their congregations to walk all over them in the name of servanthood. So that's one polarization of power. But really weirdly with this metaphor, I think it goes both ways. You see, servanthood also can be associated today with professionalization. When I was in the city as a lawyer, I was in the service industry, as it was called, and I was not lacking in power at that point. People paid a lot of money for what we sold, and what we sold was a service. And let's be honest, I was a trainee solicitor at the beginning, so my service was basically to be a highly paid photocopier, just occasionally to walk into a meeting and look like I knew what I was talking about, which I didn't. Fortunately, there was always someone more senior But the truth is, there was I, a servant to the client, and we'd made an absolute art form of this servanthood. But it was a funny kind of servanthood. We didn't serve for love. We blatantly served for the money. And it wasn't we who were powerless. We were the powerful ones in the room. We were the ones saying, this is what you need to do. And foolhardy the client who decided to do something different than this magic circle firm was telling them to do. And so in that context, you've got servants and yet servants who hold all the power and who hold all the control and who, in telling the client what to do, are possibly even disempowering the client, disempowering the one who's being served. In that way, you've got dynamics going in both directions for servanthood. And I am not convinced that this polarization of power is that helpful. We need to recognize differences in power. Of course we do. But I don't think we need our language that we're using to polarize power into an even more rigid kind of framework. We need, I think, language that will do something different in order to get more at the heart of what Jesus was talking about. You've offered a compelling critique of servant leadership, Chloe. But one of the things you do as well in your work is not offer a, simply a critique, but you also talk about your own understanding of Christian leadership and root it in a theology of the incarnation. You therefore develop this idea of incarnational church leadership. Tell us about what you understand by that term and and how it alters the way that we begin to think about leadership from a Christian perspective. Sure. I think at its very root, the incarnation shows us what it is to be redeemed people and what it therefore is to be the church. Now, when I talk about the incarnation, what's important here is the person of Jesus. 
I'm not so interested in the event. And the reason is that the event is not actually replicable. We can't reproduce the incarnation. So my interest is not in the event as something we should somehow copy, but actually in the person. Who is it that became flesh and dwelt among us? Because he is the one in whom redeemed humanity exists and finds its identity and pattern. Now, clearly, you could spend a lot of words explaining exactly what that might mean. I spent about 20,000. I'll spare you all that. But just in summary, what I normally do is to compress all of those words into four sentences. I have to write them down. So I will read them at this point because I can never remember them exactly. Here's the essence, if you like, of what I think this theology of incarnation does. It proposes that the end goal of the church, the telos, and therefore of its leadership is a deeper participation in Christ's ministry and life of love. So that's the first sentence, and it's about the goal. And the second, third, and fourth sentences are about that process of influence towards the goal. So what influences people in that direction is a relational and canotic or self-giving praxis of love. When we show God's love to others, we make his life present by the spirit to those others bringing heaven's realities to bear on earthly realities. And then those whom we seek to lead begin moving towards this reality of love when they respond to the love they receive by loving others in return. Now, that's my four sentences. But if you want me to put it more catchily, which I think everyone does, we lead to love in love. That is God's people Living in and ministering God's love is how we understand church leadership success. It's not the ABCs. Attendance, buildings, cash, numbers, that's not the be all and end all. The ministry of love is. And the way we get there, the way that we lead towards love is by expressing love. We know our leadership's successful when those that we lead actually start to respond in love. And that represents, therefore, a real challenge to the idea that the goal is simply a set of results. Here you're saying the goal is participation in the love of Christ and that, therefore, the only way we can lead people towards that goal is to model that love for ourselves, to lead in love and to love in love. What challenge does that offer, therefore, Chloe, to contemporary thinking about leadership or to put it more positively how does that invite us into a more healthy way of thinking about leadership? I think fundamentally it changes our understanding about power about how we use our influence so when a person expresses love and is hoping that another will respond in mutuality that's the basic leadership practice here what we do is call that friendship in normal life and when friendship shapes how we use our power it means we start to use power with others so there's lots of different ways of using power you can use power over somebody and typically that's unilateral use of power in addition to power over someone you can use power for someone when you use power for someone you are expressly directing your power for their benefit or if you don't consult them than for their perceived benefit. And I think servanthood actually fits really well in this category. You seek to use your power for the other, but you don't necessarily have to ask the other what they feel about that. Whereas friendship power means using our power with others. I 
share of myself and hope that you will share of yourself enough that we can actually know one another's needs and hopes. It means a degree of mutual vulnerability, actually. It means I can't become a total doormat either. I can't uplift the followers at the expense of my very self because leadership is fundamentally about relationship. I have to have enough of a self still to relate to you afterwards. And it's really interesting. Jesus picks this up in John 10. You know, he talks about laying down his life. We get all very excited about this, this principle of self-sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. You see it at the cross. But the cross is not the end of the story. And Jesus says in John 10, I lay my life down. Why? In order that I might take it up again. The self-sacrifice is not the end of the story. It's relationship that is. Self-sacrifice is for the sake of relationship. And, and I think that friendship power recognises this. It values that dynamic of mutuality between the two selves. You spoke earlier, Chloe, about the journey you went on as a 26-year-old leader and be the paid employee at the age of 28. Looking back on leadership, or perhaps more broadly, looking back on your own journey of faith, how has this exploration of leadership as friendship impacted on your own leadership practices and also discipleship rhythms? So for me, theology and practice have always been deeply integrated. It can't be any other way when the reason I did the PhD was really because I had to have an answer to the practical question. And I was developing this work on friendship leadership in that decade of leading the church. So practice really was informing theory and theory really was informing practice. And what they did was to prove for me that friendship leadership actually can happen. I am fully aware that many academic colleagues who engage with my work think I'm an idealist and I probably am. In a way, I think it's important to be. Leaders are meant to point to that which is beyond. So it's important to be able to see that which is beyond in order to call the church forward towards it. But I also know this is not pure idealism because I've had the privilege of living it. Since then, the work that I did, particularly this theme of participation, has totally opened my thinking and my practice in terms of understanding what faithfulness might look like, what mystery it is that we get to share in the life and love of Christ. Understanding that friendship union at that deeper level as a result of this work has just changed everything. It's changed how I minister to others. It's changed how I pray. It's changed the emphasis in my teaching too, because now everything just flows out of that understanding that God has invited us into friendship with him. That's a remarkably positive, encouraging and also thought provoking note on which to end. Chloe Lynch, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, Philip. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.